Hello and welcome to this episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with actor, writer, performer, stand-up comedian, it's Phil Walker. Hey, Phil, Hello. how are you? <laughs> I'm very well, Paula, how are you? Jack of all trades, jack of all trades. Master of none. <laughs> well, that remains to be seen, Phil. <laughs> remains to be seen. So, I usually like to start off by chatting a little bit about childhood. It's not something we generally know too much about the the stand-ups and, you know, actors and things that we, we go and see on a regular basis. So what were you like as a kid? I mean, I mean, obviously people are kind of make that connection that you, you have a slightly famous dad. Yeah, we, yeah. We all grew uh, up, like, you know, people of a certain generation grew up with. and Yeah, Roy Walker from mm. Catchphrase and uh, the comedians and all that business. Yes. So, yeah, that, our, our childhood was sort of spent... Well, the early part of it was in the northeast of England, uh, just outside Durham in Peter Lee. Um, and that's the club scene. It, this was the sort of late 70s and uh, the club scene was massive up there. So a lot of acts used to live uh, in Peter Lee. In fact, our next door neighbours were the Crankies. <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> yeah, it, it was fun, Dabby Dozy. <laughs> Didn't hear any noises. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no! <laughs> I was in bed before then. No. <laughs> yeah, you've read the book then. <laughs> I've I've heard all the stories. I've heard all the yeah, stories. Yeah. But having them as yeah, so neighbors, um, wow. Anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, that was the early sort of stages, and then when we then we moved down to sort of near Blackpool, uh, Lytham St Anne's, and we've we've uh, sort of been based there ever since. Um, went to school there and everything because. Blackpool and and uh, places like that became very popular in the early eighties, late seventies, early eighties, and uh, summer seasons were happening. So that's where my dad would be. So every summer season, we would um, we would go to wherever he was, it whether it be Blackpool or Scarborough or Yarmouth, etc. There would be summer seasons on there, and he would be on with the likes of Cannon and Ball and uh, Little and Large and uh, Freddie Starr, yeah, Russ Abbott, etc. And, uh, you know, we got to hang around backstage and meet these wonderful people. And, um, yeah, it, it was a, it was it was an unusual childhood, but uh, a fun one, really. Fun. I mean, Frank Carson, we used to call him Uncle Frank. I, you know, up until he, he nearly died, I, I still believed he was my dad's brother. <laughs> it was an accent, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they both came, obviously, from the same area in Northern Ireland, Ooh. in Belfast. So, um, yeah, he was just this funny man that hung around the house quite a bit <laughs> so I mean you know I don't think I've spoken to anybody that's had a, a dad who was you know of that of that magnitude fame wise I mean so I'm, I suppose to hit to you it was it's just your dad do you know what I mean it's not it must be weird uh, yeah, seeing, looking yeah. out from the wings and seeing all these people yeah you know. yeah I mean like walking down the street when I was a kid at school mm. you know um I mean, not so much in the early days because he, he was on the comedians first and um, a lot of my friends and me, we didn't really watch it. You know, it was just like for us at that time, it was a load of old men telling jokes. So what do you want to watch? Well, I wanted to watch Scooby-Doo, you know. <laughs> uh, but obviously when uh, we got a bit older, then Catchphrase came out and, and suddenly it was this cutting edge, you know, computers had, had not even come out really in the mid This is the mid 80s, 85 when yeah, it first yeah. came out. Nobody had a computer in the house. Um, so to see the, all these graphics on the screen, I mean, if you watch Catchphrase today uh, with Stephen Mulhern, it's exactly the same mm. set and everything as when my dad did it. So the technology w was actually ahead of its time, really. So 
that's I think that's you know it, up until then we're just seeing game shows with darts and cards and stuff like that. Suddenly we've got all these wonderful graphics on the screen, and I think it really captured people's imagination. You know. Yeah. Well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Do you know what I mean? Like. No, no. And uh, so he, you know, it was 15 million viewers mm. watching him. So, you know, us walking down the street became a bit of a problem. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> uh, yeah. why does everyone want to get the picture yeah. taken with my dad? Exactly. You know, it's just my dad, you know. But uh, yeah, fun times though. Yeah, I mean, it was all the working men's clubs and everything, you know, around that time as well, wasn't it? And obviously, all the, as you say, mm. all the Blackpool summer seasons and stuff. So yeah, heady yeah, times was, as a kid, you know. Yeah, I mean, he uh, he he worked in them days six six sometimes seven nights a week. You could work, wow. you know, you could work Monday to Saturday and and do it. I remember him telling me he said you could do six months, six nights a week in Manchester, uh, it, just as an area, and do the not do the same club twice. There was that much work, wow. you know, and uh, and then you'd move on to Wales, and then you'd go on somewhere else, and then eventually you'd make your way around but it would take years rather <laughs> than so are you from are you from a big family have you got many siblings I've got a brother and a sister uh-huh. um I've got an older brother Mark he's a couple of years older than me and he uh he he's in the game as well well he's kind of dipped out of it for a while now um he's having a bit of a sabbatical but um he's been in the like comedy and acting and stuff all his life and my sister Joe she's uh she's an actress and uh, she's been in like the West End and big shows and stuff like that. So, yeah, so we all followed into it, but we never went to uh, like a posh drama school or anything like that. We, mm. you know, we just went to normal comprehensive school. But I suppose us growing up around that, it was kind of in us to to follow on with it. You know, that's the thing, as you say, like we you went to like normal school and everything. So, what was the plan? Was there ever a plan in your mind when you were a kid? Oh, I want to do what my dad, what my dad does. Or did, no. you have, did you have other plans for other things? Well, I I, um, I used to caddy. My dad used to play a lot of golf. Um, he still plays a bit, but I used to caddy for him. So he, especially during the summer seasons, I'd be carrying his bag around and he'd be playing golf with like Eddie Large and <laughs> Russ Abbott of people oh, man. and Frank Carson, you know. So I'm, we're up at the crack of dawn, you know, on a golf course somewhere and just, just laughing our heads off watching these lot play golf and cracking jokes and stuff. So I kind of got into golf uh, in a big way um, mm. and started playing that. And then I ended up becoming assistant pro golfer. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, at a couple of local golf courses near where we live. And so I did that for like four years. And in the meantime, my brother Mark, he'd gone into it. And my sister had just left college. She's a couple of years younger than me. And she went straight into acting. Mm. Um, but I was quite shy up until I was sort of early 20s. So... I came to a bit of a crossroads with the golf thing because I had dreams and aspirations as we all do as young people to be on the tour with Seve Ballesteros and stuff. And then when I suddenly realised I wasn't going to be that good, I, uh, I I just decided, I mean, I could have carried on and become a club professional. I was an assistant club professional. Mm. But, you know, every club has got their own like club professional who who they, they repair the cl- golf clubs and yeah. uh, give people lessons and, and run the shop, you know. So it's, it, is an, it is a good life, but it, I just decided it, it maybe wasn't for me. You know, I just felt there was something else out there. So I kind of drifted around for a couple of years. And then my dad just suggested when we were playing golf one day, funny enough, he just suggested, he just said, well, why don't you, be, why don't you come a blue coat at Pontins? 
you know, he might give you the confidence. You know, he said I, he'd worked all these holiday parks and he said they have these group of people called blue coats and yeah. they have to call the bingo and compare like the lovely legs contest and stuff like that. So I went, okay. So I applied for that and um, and I ended up going to Yarmouth for six months and went there. A boy came back a man, you know, in, in more ways than one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you hear the stories, Phil, don't you? you oh, don't yeah, good times, true. good times. Didn't know I was born, but uh, <laughs> no, so I ended up doing that for a couple of years and I, just, I went back the next year. I loved it that much and and I learned so much from doing that every night, calling the bingo and, and then I'd throw in a few stupid jokes and then we and then we used to do the blue coat show at the end of the, the week. So you could be absolutely rubbish and some of us were, you know, uh, but because you'd been looking after the guests all week, they all loved you, you know. And so we'd, I'd get up and do like four or five minutes of impressions and and jokes that I'd stolen from Freddie Starr and, <laughs> <laughs> and Frank Carson and my dad. And, and so, yeah, so then after that two years, I just I, I started entering. At that time, there was a load of talent competitions around the northwest in Blackpool and stuff. Mm. And uh, I just started doing that. And, uh, and suddenly... It, it just exploded. I just ended up winning a couple and got a, got an agent, and I started off on the holiday park circuit and the work and what was left of the sort of um, working men's clubs. Uh, so it, that's how I started um, off in 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 my road to comedy. But I actually didn't want to, to go down that route because mm. at that time I um, well alternative comedy had been around a while, but. On TV, it was Friday Night Live and stuff like that yeah. with Ben Elton. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you remember that. And, um, you know, and I'd see like Lee Evans and all these brilliant acts on there. And I just went, I, I want to do that. I, I don't want to do jokes and standard pub jokes like I'm doing now. I just I just felt it wasn't right doing someone else's material and, and stuff like that. So uh, it took me a few years to find out about clubs like the Frog and Bucket in, in Manchester. And then the sort of late 90s, I went down to the Frog and Bucket and it was like, um, it was just a, a eureka moment for me. I just went, this isn't where I need to be. Even though I was I was actually earning quite good money doing the Butlins and Ponting circuit um, and working, you know, some of the bigger worker men's clubs that were left. I just went, do you know what? I don't care how much it is. If it's 50 pound, 40 quid, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll do it because yeah. that's where I wanted to be. So I just dropped all my material and started again on on that circuit, and it was the best thing I ever did. I think. Yeah, it's one of those things, though. You know, you're saying like the oh, the whole Pontins, <laughs> Butlins thing. It was such. A, it was a, a great uh, learning place for a lot of people, like Ooh. you know, Freddie Freddie Davis, Des O'Connor, all those guys. You know, yeah. start starting off in Butlins. Oh yeah, and absolutely. Kind of working their way up the ranks. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I started, funny enough, when I started doing the 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 Frog and Bucket and a few of the clubs like the Buzz Club and stuff like that around the Northwest, people were kind of going, who's this guy? You know, he, he's like, never heard of him, but he's, I'm not saying I was brilliant or anything like that, but I, I had a lot of confidence and, and knew how to work a room because I'd worked some of those really hard working men's clubs and and uh, and the holiday parks where you've got to get people's attention. That, yeah. was the, that was the one thing I couldn't believe when I first went into the Frog and Bucket. People, I went, wow, people are actually listening to what's going on on stage, you know, I, in in a working men's club or a holiday park, you're just this dot in the corner yeah. of the room, this interrupting the bingo, and you know, you kind of go, "Look at me, I'm great." But 
Whereas in a comedy club, everyone's like, oh, we, this is what we've actually paid to work, to watch. And they're, they're, they're actually hanging on your every word. And I, I just found that fascinating when I first went in. It's so funny, isn't it? You're saying that you were such a, you were a shy kid. And obviously yeah. and it was just this, this light bulb moment, you know, getting onto a, onto a stage in, in Pontins, um, Butlins and stuff. That's kind of, it's, it's about boosting that confidence, isn't it? To get yourself up in yeah. front of people. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, I had, I do remember the third year at school, we had a charity thing. I think it was for Live Aid. And um, they, uh, they asked us, they drew names out of the hats in the, in the class for people to get up and do an act. We put like a variety show on each class had to do a bit, you know, and my name got drawn out of the hat. And the teacher just said in front of everyone, what are you going to do, Walker? And it was, <laughs> you, know, you know, you wouldn't get away with it today, would you? No, so I just went, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do some comedy. And everyone's going, oh, he's, this is going to be rubbish, you know. He's going to so die I, on his ass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I went on in front of my uh, my whole year. Oh, my God. In, in the assembly, absolutely bricking it. But I did like, I had like three minutes to do or something. So I just did three minutes of the best jokes that I knew, like some of Frank Carson's and some of my dad's and stuff. Yeah. And uh, and it went down really well. I remember the teachers laughing their heads off and I remember it quite vividly. And some of my, some of the, like the, the cool kids laughing, you know, and stuff. And uh, I remember uh, the year above, no, it, it was, it was the school. It wasn't just the year. It was the actual school. Oh, wow. And I remember the year above me was Stephen Tompkinson. Um, Who's a brilliant actor on TV? Yes, yeah. Uh, and he did a he did a two handed double act thing as Stan Laurel uh, with, with his friend, and they did like Laurel and Hardy singing the in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Yeah, they did that one, and yeah, and everyone thought, oh, they're going to win it. They're going to win. I, I ended up winning it with this three minute routine, and I remember they gave me a tape. I had it for years. It was a cassette tape of. Now that's what I call music. And I think it was the first one in the <laughs> mid 80s. Do you remember that? It used to come out every year. That's what I call music, like when yeah, up to yeah, like yeah. 30 or something. Oh, it's now like, what, 150 or something? <laughs> yeah, it probably crazy. is. Yeah, it's that long ago. Well, I had this tape for years. I kept it just as a, a souvenir. But after that, after the moment, I remember though, the minute I stepped off the stage, I never got the sort of inkling to say, do you know what? I want to do that again. Mm. It just sort of left me. And then, Obviously, I've came back to it years later, but yeah, yeah I mean, the, the Pontins thing was a, obviously a natural progression. Then, do you know what I mean? It was it was the next step to yeah. ignite what the the flame that was already kind of flickering. Yeah, but away, I, you know? I would never have done it on my own though. Had mm. my dad said yeah, yeah, like, yeah. "Go and do that," I wouldn't have known how to do it. How how do you do that? You know, yeah, exactly. it, this this was, you know, this was in the days before you couldn't just Google stuff and. Or, or even when I think of finding the frog and bucket and stuff, I remember looking for it on CFAX. <laughs> yeah. I just typed in comedy clubs and it oh, came up. I miss, um, I miss it. I miss the old yeah. CFAX. Teletext and CFAX. You had to put your holiday on there, didn't you? And if you didn't do it in time, it was gone. You used to go up the screen. <laughs> it was where you got all your news from as well. You know, all the yeah. pop news, people touring. <laughs> Mental, wasn't it? Mental. <laughs> the internet's ruined everything. It has. I, I, I think. I think so. Apart from this, obviously. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there must be some sort of weird osmosis, though, for all of your, for the majority of your siblings to have gone all down that similar road. There's obviously something in the genes. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. So, just, and and doing it successfully is well. You know, we've all made 
and living out of it for several decades. And, you know, I'm not saying we're millionaires or anything, but we've actually made a living, which, mm. you know, quite a few people that I started off with, and I'm sure with Joe when she started acting and stuff, have just dropped away because, you know, other things happen and, you you know, life changes. But for us to sort of carry on with it and actually make a, you know, a reasonable living out of, of doing something that you that you love, we're quite lucky, really. You know, you know. I've been when I look back on the, my career, what I've done. You know, traveling all around the world and you know entertaining the troops in Afghanistan yeah. and stuff like that. It's it's you know doing pantomimes with Matthew Kelly and people like that. I used to watch on telly. You know, just you know, that's what I love about it. You just never know what's going to come next. You know, uh, you, the next phone call or the next email. I think that's the. That's the, the exciting thing about it all for me. Even today, you know, I actually came back out of the pandemic. I got a bit, um, I did get a bit jaded with it, to be honest, coming up towards the uh, the pandemic. But, uh, I remember thinking, you know, where am I going with this? You know, I always had like, I always had like a bit of a plan for a few years. Oh, I need to get in that club or I need to do yeah. this. But the last couple of years, I think I lost a bit of direction, really leading up to the pandemic but then when the pandemic came after and then we all got out of it I was we were all sort of excited to get back on stage again and you know it, I think it gave me a shot in the arm mm. more than in more ways than one you know to uh, to get back at it and I'm, yeah. I'm more enthusiastic about performing now than I ever have been I'm more open to sort of getting myself out of my comfort zone actually you know I did a play in the West End and you know, I would never have done something like that. You know, it was just it was just something that happened by chance, and then all of a sudden, wow! I remember standing in the wings. We did this play with, and I was like, I was expecting someone to grab me on the shoulder and go, "Oh, we were only joking, Phil." You know, yeah, you're not meant to be here. You should get back to Butlins, you know. <laughs> but you know, it, it that that's the that's the beautiful thing about about what we do. You know, it's um, you just don't know what's around the corner. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the best things that came out of lockdown, that it kind of it gave you that time to kind of assess what you were mm. doing, maybe look at new ways of doing things. It kind of gave you that little bit of breathing space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, whether it be writing books or starting oh. a podcast or... Yeah, exactly. You know, that you, you can't, you know, it gave you that opportunity to say, well, do you know, what, what, do, I want to, what, what do I want to do next and how am I going to go about it? And, and, and when you... When you're too busy doing stuff, I think sometimes you don't get around to doing what you want to do. But I think when we had that time, if you used it wisely, mm. you could actually. It's amazing how many people have, who have come out of it, friends of mine, and they've, suddenly they've just exploded. You know, people like Troy Hawk. You know, oh, Matt, yeah. you know, I worked with Milo for years on the circuit. You know, oh, he's incredible. He, yeah, and then suddenly, because of the lockdowns or whatever, in he started posting all these wonderful videos online and it, it just, it, it just exploded, hasn't it? You know, and in, now he's doing a national tour. Often. Yeah. I mean, the greatest guild thing, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. where no one had ever done anything like that before. No, hanging around outside, you know, Starbucks or wherever. And, yeah. you know, Greek, it just became this thing, didn't it? You know, and uh, Dan Knight, I remember Dan Nightingale, you know, and, and he said, I'm starting this podcast with Adam Rowe in the bedroom. And, and they filled an arena last year, you know, and all that's come from the lockdown and stuff. Yeah, you know? well, there's a lot to be said, isn't there, for, <laughs> for being stuck yeah. at for being stuck, stuck at, at home. home yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, let's talk a little bit about your your writing process. Again, has it? I'm assuming it's it's evolved, and you're you're constantly learning anyway. Uh, so how do you work? Are you do you work from observation? Do you work? How how does it generally? Does your material come together? Uh, yeah, I, I used to write down a lot of stuff, mm. um, but when I started emceeing a few years ago, if I had an idea for something, I would just go on stage and and play it out and see how it goes from there, and then yeah. I kind of hone it as it goes along. So I, I have I have sort of key words now for, for bits when I'm I've got quite a set list whenever I if I'm doing like 20 minutes or 30 mm. minutes, whatever, and I'll go like, okay, I'm gonna talk about these things. So but it's just key words. But um and then every so often I record myself because you can end up just sort of waffling a bit, you know, too much rather than getting to the punchline and you're wasting time on stage. In fact I've I'm just in the process of reading uh, Adam Bloom's brilliant book at the moment about um, writing comedy and stuff. Mm. And and he, he makes some really great points in it. You know, we all sort of, we can drift into just sort of just talking gibberish really, rather than just getting to the point of what you're actually talking about. You know, what is my point? What, you know, what am I trying to get to here? Only, only you know what your point is. You know, the audience is, they're, they're hearing it for the first time. Yeah. Even if you do that routine every night for 10 years or it's the first time you've told it, you know what you're going to say, but the audience doesn't. And sometimes I think we, um, as comics, we we take that, we don't really look at that properly, you know, mm. from an audience's perspective. You know, they're hearing it for the first time. So you can just, you can waste five minutes when it could have been like a one-minute bit you know, because you're just too busy waffling trying to get to where you're going. So I am trying to sort of edit that way a bit, really. About having a start a start point and then end part. Yeah. I mean, I used to do short... When I first started, it, it was all short sort of one-liners and hmm. sort of a bit, a bit surreal, really. But now I sort of talk about, you know, it's topical stuff and stuff that's going on with my life and, and stuff that's going on. I, I, I try not to do too much topical stuff because the problem is with topical stuff is you can get like it. Like when I, when I first came out of lockdown, lockdown, I had like a really good 15 minutes all about lockdown and it was ripping it apart. I think I've got like two minutes of that left now because people are just sick of hearing about news. the lockdown. Yeah, it's gone. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've had to, I've had to write a whole new, well, yeah. I'm currently trying to write, more stuff to sort of fill in around where I've had in it. I had a piece recently and I, I just went, I've just got to let that go now because it's just not getting the reaction. It was getting 18 months ago because it's moved on. It, so I think, yeah, I think writing topical material can be a sort of, um, especially a lot of it can be, it can have its problems, you know? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that's, that'd be the good, good side of being an MC. You're getting to see lots of other people working and how they yeah. work and their, yeah. the audience interaction that they're getting you know but on the other hand as an MC, you're the one basically holding everything together yeah 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 you know yeah i mean i don't MC a lot but i am I, I have my own little gig that i book up here in in lytham and we do like five or six shows a year mm. so the old we've been doing it 10 years now so the audience really know me really well so i, I can get away with murder really you know i can just just by waffling but if i've got an idea for something new i'll 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 throw it in there. I don't really do new material nights anymore. I just I find they're a bit of a poison chalice anyway because mm. I've been 
I used to do the comedy store one in Manchester on a Sunday before it closed down. And and then I went to hot water a couple of times, but the audience are that hyped up at those places. You, you can walk out thinking, Oh, I've got a new 10 minutes here. And because they're just laughing at everything, that's not even that funny really. And then you try it on a weekend and you've got 30 seconds instead of 10 minutes. So, yeah. So I stopped going to those places. And, I, and if I've got any idea for something, I just throw it in, in the middle of my act somewhere, you know, oh. just a, and then just sort of build on it from there. Yeah. A lot of comedians do that though, don't they? They have these, these sort of like trying out gigs where they're basically just trying out new material and you're warned <laughs> beforehand. Yeah. Not yeah, they call it work, working pro. I mean, I remember yeah. doing. I remember doing the Glee Club though years ago, and in Birmingham, and and it it would say like on the advertisement, uh, mystery TV star, and people would pay tickets to to see who it was going to be, mm. and you get like Michael McIntyre turning up uh, when he first exploded, Lee Evans once, you know, and he he did the whole weekend, and you know his agents there and everything, and they're going, oh. It, He's just going on in the middle. He's just going to do 10 minutes trying out material. And he'd go on and do an hour. He'd just totally destroy it. And then the poor actor who was supposed to be closing the show had to follow Lee Evans, you know. Uh, but he had this team of writers with him. And they would methodically, over the weekend, just just go over whatever he'd done. And, you know, it, and then that would go on his tour and then build on from there. But, yeah, a lot of the big acts now, like, you know, I did, I did a bit of Jason Manford's tour last year, but he, he starts off in the small little theatres and then mm. he ends up building towards the bigger theatres and then ends up in the arenas. So it's almost oh, yeah. like yeah. it becomes three stages, doesn't it, you know? He covers all the bases now, doesn't he? He's singing and he's oh, <laughs> dancing, he's doing yeah, everything. Yeah, he's, he's a talented man. We went to see him in uh, Wizard of Oz. I took my family down to see him and he, he was in Wizard of Oz. My wife's a massive Wizard of Oz fan. Um, she loves Judy Garland, so took her took her down to see that in the summer. And Jason played the lion in it, and uh, he, he was just like the lion from the movie. He had his he had him off to a tee, his voice, and he could sing. He's a very talented man. He deserves all the success he gets. Mm. I mean, but I remember it was twenty twenty odd years ago when we were doing the comedy store around Manchester, and we used to do men at work. It that was a topical sort of night on a Wednesday, and we do improv, and and the audience had give us stuff and Jason was one of the team there was like four or five of us and I remember thinking at the time god who, who is this guy you know he's like just like, come from nowhere came out of nowhere was, yeah 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 and I, funny enough I didn't realize how young he was because I, I I always thought at that time I remember thinking because I was probably in my early 30s and I thought oh he's probably like early like late 20s he always looked older for his age but he was probably only about 18 then oh my god yeah because i think jason's only like 40 now isn't he yeah, or yeah. if he, if he is crazy. 40 um and he's been a been a star over 20 years so you know he he was good straight he, he i appreciate now more than i did then how good he was then because he was good straight away so you can see how he's done so well he deserves it you know I mean, it's like, how does it work when you're all, you've got mates who are comics as well? How does it work? Do you ever kind of give advice? No, it, it was weird in those days because it was, uh, what do you say in those days? It sounded like or a really old... critical valuation but, kind of thing, you know. I think, like, there's, there's very few, like Adam Bloom, going back to what I was talking mm. about, Adam Bloom, whenever I worked with him, um, he always used to give me, like, 
oh, you know that guy, I really like that gag you did, and he would give you a topper to it, yeah, you know, yeah. like a, a finish, finishing extra one-liner or try it this way, and he, he would say, I think you should say this instead of that, you know. Um, like just even a word, like there was one thing where I, I was saying, like, uh, say a zodiac sign where it was Aries, and he said Sagittarius is funnier. <laughs> You know, and funny, so I changed it to Sagittarius, and bang, the whole thing changed. Wow. And he, he just, he just, just from an outsider looking in, uh, it was just weird, you know. But um, but different perspective, isn't it? Sort of seeing things from yeah, from another yeah. angle. Sometimes you're too close to something, aren't you? Mm. You know, it's like if you write a book or something, and you need to give it to someone else to look at it, and then they spot the flaws in it where you, you know, where you should edit, and oh, I don't understand that bit. Like going back to what I was saying before about, you know, you're performing the material because you understand what it is you want to say. Mm, but yeah. unless you're giving it over clearly to an audience, they're not, they're going to be confused. Yeah. You know, because you know what you mean, but they don't. And sometimes you can assume that they know what you mean, but they don't know what you mean. They're, they're hearing it for the first time. It's like reading a book. For the, you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen next, but the guy that wrote it did. But, but if he's, spent a long time waffling around it and sort of gone off point, then you sort of lose. That's when a ba- a good book potentially becomes a bad book, doesn't it? You know, like a good gag can, can actually can end up being a bad gag unless it's edited properly and mm. put in the right place. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I suppose even the way gags are delivered, do you know what I mean? Like the way one guy does it and another guy could do exactly the same thing. Yeah, totally. It could, could be a totally, totally different yeah, people. I mean, thing. people actually. A lot of acts as well. I've noticed they they actually forget about the performance side of it, and I think that is massively important. It's almost as important, if not more, than the actual material. Oh, definitely. I mean, if if you like, if you look at the likes of uh, Peter Kay early on, or or um, Lee Evans, and, and if you actually looked at some of their material, not all of it, but some mm. of it is just quite basic. Actually, they're quite basic jokes, but because of the way they're performing it with their facial expressions and yeah. physicality on stage, they actually made it funnier than what it actually was on paper. Um, and I think a lot of acts, you know, everyone wants to be cool and just stand there and just deliver the material, but they don't necessarily look at that, what they could actually do with it. I mean, Al, Alan, I remember Alan Carr, I remember working with him for the first time and he was just naturally funny the way he just shimmied onto the, like he'd been on the stage. All, Hello, it's Alan Carr. He was, you know, straight away, he was brilliant, you know. And he was acting out all these, you know, all these characters and people that he'd worked with. And uh, he just, and his facial expressions, he was like, a, he was like a carry on film, you know. And, um, you know, I can see what, now why people were comparing him to young Frankie Howard because he just, you know, when he first started, because he just had that thing about him but he did that naturally some people have to work at it you know and it takes a while yeah i mean what what are you thinking about the whole oh, the whole politically correct thing um, yeah. I, I mean you know obviously <clears throat> things have changed so so much from you know your, your dad winning new faces back in the day to, to comedy <laughs> comedy as it is now i mean where do you even begin with with stuff like that you know that the whole things are acceptable and then they're not acceptable Mm. Is there anything that you think is would be should be t- taboo now, or do you? No, not really. I don't think. Well, obviously, like racist stuff and stuff mm. like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a given that you know you can't do stuff like that. Yeah. But um, 
I think once you start censoring comedians on stage, I think that it loses a bit of its power. You know, there's mm. always there's always going to be a victim in a joke. I think you know for for a joke to be funny, you know, a bit of cruelty in there. But I think it's picking your if you pick your victims, you know, the right victims. Like if you're going to go after someone, make sure it's someone that deserves going after, not just someone because of the way they look or the 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 way you know they live their lives or whatever. But um, like, you know, if you're going to do stuff on Rishi, Rishi Sunak, for instance, who's been in the news this week, he kind of deserves it, doesn't he? You know, um, and Boris Johnson, that you know, Trump and people like that, yeah. they just yeah, yeah, deserve yeah. everything they got. But yeah, I mean, I remember twenty odd years ago. I think it was twenty years ago or so when it. I remember a PC thing being around then. It was all like, you know, everything has to be politically correct. Yeah. Oh, you can't say that. You can't yeah. say that. You know. And now it, today they call it woke, don't they? Now it's a woke thing, but it's <clears throat> it's it's still the same thing, but it's just mm. it's just come full circle again. Um, it's just called something else, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, they just dressed it up under a different thing. But, yeah, I, th- I think... I think I don't think anything. Like, if you watch like the likes of Bill Burr, then a lot of people mm. think he's, you know, if if you actually watch and listen to what he's doing, he's the idiot in the in the the actual bits. You know, he, you know, people think, oh, he's having a go at women and stuff like that. If you looked at it in a sort of an, a flippant way, you could see why they think that. But mm. he, he's actually the idiot in it in, in a lot of his pieces and. He actually explains what the gags are and where he's going with it. You know, I, I think it, people like that are brilliant. I th- but I do think um, sometimes some comics, when they get a bit too powerful, they can. Uh, I, I've seen them, like Dave Chappelle, for instance. You know, I'm a massive Dave Chappelle fan. Mm. I, th- I think on his last special, he, he got a bit lazy and he kind of went after the trans thing and stuff. Yeah. And then, and then you'll then you'll see. You know, uh, someone like Ricky Gervais, kind of, who, who's kind of fancies himself as a bit of a Dave Chappelle. He, you know, he's brilliant, Ricky Gervais as yeah. well. But but he would probably go, well, I'm going to get in on that as well, and I'm going to do my trans sort of thing because that's obviously the thing to do. But you can't, you know, stuff like that. I, I think no, you bet. You know, when I watched the Dave Chappelle thing, I was like, oh no, you're better than that. You know, why are you doing that after all that brilliant stuff you've done? Mm-hmm. Why are you you know why are you going after a an easy target like that you know an intelligent funny man like you you know yeah. and I can't something inside me sort of changed watching him now mm. I can't watch him in the same light to be honest yeah I mean that's the thing about comedy isn't it, it there, there is something for everybody I mean even the whole Jerry Sadowitz thing yeah. in Edinburgh last year I mean you know. If people want to go and see him, let them go and see him. You know what I mean? It's it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy this whole censorship thing that's, that's he, that seems we, to be we, going on. Yeah, we, we need people like Jerry Shadowitch out out there uh, because if everyone was just like bland and talking about their mm. pet dog, and you know, aren't, aren't hey, Uggs are comfy, aren't they? And stuff <laughs> like that. It's, you know, whatever. It just becomes boring, doesn't it? You need someone. I love watching people like Phil Ellis. You know, I've always been a massive. Do you know Phil? Mm-hmm. Um, he's just totally. He's just totally dangerous, and you don't know what he's going to do next. And I think the circuit needs the comedy world needs people like that. I mean, Jim Jim Jeffries was another one when when I started doing Jonglers. Yep. You know. Back in this like twenty years ago, uh, and then Jim sort of appeared on the circuit, and he was this bad boy sort of 
image that he had, sort of punk rock, sort of rock star image. And you know, everyone's trying to be friendly and wearing the loud shirts and stuff. And then he comes on the scene and I just, I just, something about that. I think you need people like that out there. It's just. Um, yeah. I mean, there has to be, you know, yeah. like Jimmy Carr, you know, if you're going to go and see Jimmy Carr, you know, <laughs> exactly. you know what you're going to get. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like. Yeah, I mean, he's not for me personally, but I'm, he's got his fans and he's earned a lot yeah. of money. So he is for he is for a lot of people. You know, you know, I, I'm I'm not a massive one liner fan. You know, I like seeing more about someone. You know, about you know that that's why that's but that's my personal taste. Other friends of mine and millions of people love Jimmy Carr. You know, but so like you say, there's a place for Jimmy Carr. There's yeah. a place for everyone in the world where we are now with the internet and everything else mm. there there is a you know it's finding that finding your niche and finding your place you know um and th- th- there is room for everyone yeah it's about again as you say it's about carving your own niche isn't it what you do different yeah. to to what you know what joe soap is doing uh, on on another on another stage yeah exactly yeah and i think i think at the end of the day it's like i you know i used to read these things about you got to find your voice and on and stuff like that you find your own voice on stage i think eventually you just become you an exaggerated version of you i mean i'm basically what i am on stage now is just a slightly exaggerated version of of what i am off stage you know whereas i think when i first started out you end up sort of mimicking people that you like. You know, I used to really like Harry Hill and Lee Evans and people like that. So I, I would end up sort of, if I watched too much of them, I would end up using some of their mannerisms and stuff. And that's a dangerous road to go down. I think I think when you first start, I think that's, when you first start off, that's totally natural. Like I think that's why a lot of people do impressions when they first start off. Mm. You know, I, I used to do a lot of impressions because it's, or or a character comic because it's 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 safe to hide behind a sort of a character so, or a bit safer yeah, to yeah. hide behind a character rather than just being nakedly on stage as yourself. This is me, sort of. This is my personality, and you know, I hope you like it, sort of thing. Yeah, I'm always curious about how people find their style. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, there's you know certain comedians have a, a certain style. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's whether it is it's all part of your your personality kind of works its way through and it obviously influences the way the way you are as a performer. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 weird how some comics just become one-liner comics and just mm. stay as one-liner comics, you know, like Gary Delaney. You know, the first time I worked with Gary, he was just doing these dark one-liners and stuff, but he did it very deadpan. And I think Gary found his success when he started lightening up about what he was doing, you know, almost laughing at his own jokes, so he could he could get away with doing something really dark uh, as a one-liner, but doing it in a sort of a, a laughing, sort of off the cuff way. Um, whereas if he did it straight, people go, "Oh, I don't, I don't know whether I like that or not," you know. <laughs> but but fascinating how he and the one-liner merchants oh. like him just became, and then you've got people who who don't smile on stage who are deadpan and and then you've got the the physical comics and yeah it's 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 weird but i i think it it's something in us isn't it it's something what makes you what makes you laugh i think eventually becomes you and then hopefully uh the audience like that yeah i mean you know even I mean? jack d has lightened up a little bit and he you know in in his uh, yeah. years. well he had to really didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> now he's just a grumpy old man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, but I remember I, I was obsessed with Jack D when I first started. Oh, I incredible. just loved him. I just thought he the first time I'd seen a really cool looking guy in a suit. You know, when he had his TV show on a Friday yeah. night, and he just yeah. walked through the crowd, and she just looked the absolute dog's bollocks, didn't he? When he walked on, and and I remember going to see him years ago at Preston at the Guild Hall, and he was doing one of his early tours. And they said, oh, please. And I didn't know they had a support act on. So just Jack D. And it probably said plus support mm. in like small letters. Yeah. And they said, please welcome Jack D's uh, support act for the night, Lee Evans. Lee Evans came on. Wow. He completely blew the place apart, <laughs> you know. And Jack D, he actually struggled to follow him, you know, <laughs> on the second half. But we still loved him. But, but uh, yeah, I just loved that style of his, Jack D. And, um yeah. yeah, no, I have a similar story. I saw Lee, uh, Lee supporting Harry Hill many. Wow, met, he was he must have literally, you know, still been a kid when he was <laughs> supporting yeah. Harry on tour. Yeah, but, you know, you're kind of like, who? How do you follow Lee Evans? Even as a when he was a when he was first starting out, he was it was obvious something was gonna was there. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. Um, but you know it. These people are like forces of nature. I mean, one oh. of my favourite acts on on the circuit has been for years is Terry Alderton. And um, Legend. you know, I've I worked with Terry so many times over the years, and he's such a lovely guy as well. But why he's not, why he hasn't not made it, yeah. I don't know. It's it's like I've, I've actually booked him for my comedy night and um, up in in the northwest here and. Mm. And I've, people have gone, oh, it's is it that guy that used to be on EastEnders and stuff? And I'm going, no, it's. This guy, you've got to come and see him, you know. And then, then they do come and see him, and they go, "Wow, you know, yeah. Yeah. it's like something you've never seen before." For me, he's made for arenas. Is Terry, and I don't know how he's not made it. It's weird, isn't it? How that yeah. happens? How people yeah. stay kind of a lot of comedians stay under the radar. But, yeah, exactly. Core, they've got a cool yeah. following, but if they never kind of just because he has had TV, over, you know, he has gone on. He's done live yeah, with the yeah, yeah. and stuff like that, but. Somehow the powers that be or the audience just haven't caught up to him. Oh, it's very strange. I mean, there was a guy years ago when I first started off doing talent, doing uh, open mics. I remember doing the um, comedy store in London, doing a 10-minute years ago, and Jeff Green was on. And I, and funny enough, I was. I remember sitting in the dressing room, in the green room, and I was absolutely bricking it, as you can imagine, like, you know, doing the comedy store in London. I just all day I'm just churning about it. And I walked in and all these comics were sat there, these hardened comedians. And and I was just like staring at the floor. And I remember Jeff just going, are you all right? How are you doing? Where are you from? And, oh, and then we just got so talking. Lovely. Yeah, and we just got talking. And he put me at my ease. And I always, I always remember that, you know. But he was another one. I remember watching him that night and I just thought, oh, this guy is going to be massive, you know. And then he just, just sort of disappeared and went off to Australia. Yeah, but, he's in Australia now. Yeah. <laughs> Still doing his but, thing, but you know, still still working and still being brilliant, probably. But I, for me, I would have put like I would have put my house on him becoming. Oh yeah, uh, McIntyre before McIntyre was even there. You know, he was like a. For me, he was like Jerry Seinfeld. Mm. You know, he he had that sort of every man every you know he, yeah very affable on stage, good looking guy, dressed well, suits yeah. All the suits on, yeah, um, with big management and stuff. I think he was with Off the Curb, and and everyone was thinking, oh, this guy's going to be massive, and then it just didn't happen, you know. And but I don't know, it's just, it's a weird thing, isn't it? But I I don't think 
if you don't don't make it as big as these people, I don't think that's look. It shouldn't be looked on as a failure. No, definitely not. You know? Because if you look at the people like Jeff Innocent, who who's like highly acclaimed and been a comic on the circuit for over thirty years, huh? absolutely storming it. If you talk about someone you don't want to follow, that Jeff is is one of them. Um, and then he's finding a bit of success now on online, and he's got a bit of a tour and stuff together next year. But you know, he's he's not a household name. If you walk down the street and said, "Oh, have you ever heard of Jeff Innocent?" No, not one person would probably go, "Yeah, I've heard of him." Yeah. But he's he's a brilliant comic and made a great living at it for for over thirty years, um, so he has made it, you know, really in, in my eyes. Yeah, that's no, about plowing your own furrow, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> to coin a phrase, but yeah. I mean, no, no, not everyone can be famous. No, nah. you know, but otherwise you want that though. I mean, you know, obviously there's the, the monetary get monetary gain is always good. But <laughs> I just want the money. Not what the... do you want? <laughs> Would you want to be the level of you know Michael McIntyre? I mean, it must be it, cra- it must be crazy being that level. Having that level of fame, you know, having that pressure, yeah, as well, mm. you know, um, you know, because now they they're already like Jason Manford. He's booked in his tour for next year, so he's he's got to follow the last one with a whole new hour and a half of material or whatever, yeah. and all these fans will turn up expecting that. So there is that there is that pressure that you've got looming in the background. But I suppose the rewards are are there for it, aren't they? You know, if you put the prepared to put the hours in, yeah. Yeah. Um, you were talking earlier about um, Afghanistan and entertaining the troops. Yeah. I mean, you must have played so many weird and wonderful places uh, over your career. Is there any, yeah. any any sort of weird, weird venues and things that spring to oh, mind? Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've done some. Yeah. Just standing on a pool table in uh, <laughs> in, in the Falkland Islands, uh, you know, in front of like 20 people on a mountain top. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and then turning and then turning around and introducing Bucks Fizz. <laughs> oh, that's a dream for anybody, sure. Oh, yeah, unbelievable. We flew up. We we used to do these gigs in the Falklands, and you fly up to these mountains, uh, mountain tops where they had the radars, um, and um, there'd be like twenty, a group of twenty people there, twenty soldiers, who, who worked there and lived there all the time. And we just we were just flown in to do these shows for them, you know, dancers, a comedian, a magician, uh, books fizz. I did it with Tony Hadley once from Spandau Ballet. Oh, oh, Tony, yeah. Tony, yeah, he's there singing gold to like twenty people. <laughs> and then we all got the drunk army, and, yeah, and flew somewhere else. But yeah, it's just weird. Yeah, and I've done I've done gigs in in uh, service stations. I remember doing doing a um, just off the M um, what was it uh, the M M fifty near Birmingham, yeah this service station and it was empty. Walked into this ah. canteen and I said, "Is there a comedy night on here tonight?" He said, "You the comedian?" He said, "I said yes." Yeah. What I said, I'm supposed to be on in ten minutes. He said, "Oh yeah, it'll be full in ten minutes." And all these truckers came in for their break. And then I just went on and died on my ass for half an hour. And they <laughs> got in the trucks and fucked off, you know, eating Yorkie bars or whatever they do. But, yeah. Now there's a blue plaque out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, when Walker you, but, died on his ass here. Oh, yeah. When you look back on it, you know, just some some of the gigs. But I think those gigs, that they're, they're the ones that make you, you know. So mm. when you get to do you know, support people like Jason Manford or whatever and get to do and the really nice ones. You just, you, those are the gigs that put you there and 
you appreciate the nice ones a bit more, you know. That's the thing. You can't be playing the Ritz every night. Do you know what I mean? You've got to be. You have no. a very bit of variety in your. your <laughs> and I always think. I always think. No matter how well you're doing, I always know. Like you're going. Oh, I've, I've cracked this comedy lark now. I've cracked it. You know, you've done like eight weekends on the trot and absolutely ripping it. You, I always know there's a death waiting around the corner <laughs> for me. <laughs> You'll turn up and it'll be just like a load of old men in dinner suits somewhere and be a corporate and he'll just go on and die horribly, you know, and, and that's comedy just putting you back in your place. That's the thing. How do you come back from, from dying on your ass? Do you know what I mean? It must be so, like, for me, I'd be like, I can't do this anymore. This is terrible. I think because the fact that you, I think if you carried on just dying on your ass all the time, then oh, you yeah, wouldn't there's, there's you'd a, last there's very a long. There. You shouldn't be doing this. But I think, yeah, uh, I think if you've, if you've had success on most nights and done well, you you kind of you learn to sort of brush it off. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's it hurts and it still hurts because you know you want you want to do well and you mm. want the audience to enjoy it. But you think you learn after a while. You just go, well, the situation wasn't right. You know, I was on too late. They'd had too much to drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, all these things, all these factors can go ahead. Uh, you know, can go against you. Like I said about you'll get a corporate gig, and yes, it'll be very well paid um but you you're going on in front of a load of people who not, don't don't even know you're on in don't the first place <laughs> they don't know who you are they're not bothered they just want to go to the bar and get drunk and speak to mary from accounts or whatever and you know um so you know you, you kind of learn to sort of take it really you know mm. and i think that's why a lot of people maybe pack it in because it can get you down you know that those those situations unless you learn to brush it off because it's so personal and because you're so vulnerable on the stage just as you you can I can see how people just sort of pack in and run away from it because you know it that's it's an easy thing to do and mm. and a nice you just want to be nice I just want to be at home nice and safe you know yeah but, um, I suppose your skin thickens as well as you <laughs> as the yeah. year pass as a comic you know yeah I mean, I actually enjoy. I actually enjoy sometimes when it's not going well. I, you know, I I'll kind of wallow in it, really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's you know, a story for the memoir. <laughs> sometimes you can you can turn something like that around with a lot of experience. You know, and you can end up. You know, if you start addressing how badly it's going and and just sort of turn the show into that, mm. rather than just do your prepared material, you can actually. I've actually won things around that way, but also. Sometimes you're just going to go down in flames, and you just have to accept it. And just <laughs> just <laughs> hopefully, out the get flames paid. As you're walking yeah, up the exactly. Yeah, just run to the car and never return again. <laughs> With your money, money and little bag over your shoulder. Oh my god! Yeah, like every time. Yeah. So we also, you're also a, a stalwart of the panto, of panto stalwart. <laughs> stalwart. I love that word. I love it. Yeah, I know. Um, it's what, I actually Google it. I think it's, is it an, an annoying thing that won't go away? <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> not in this case, Phil, anyway, no, not in this no. case. So what is it about Panto? I mean, again, is it all part of your growing up and being part of that? that no, scene? it was, funny enough, my, my dad's only done a, a few Pantos. Hmm. So, and I, I only saw him in a couple when I, when I was growing up. Um, but it was just a weird thing. I was just, I got asked to do Blackburn Panto about 20 odd years ago mm. and um, by a, somebody who knew it was putting the show on and they just said to me, would you like to be in it as Buttons? Uh, is, we're doing Cinderella. 
And I just went, oh my God, that sounds like what, you know, it sounds amazing, <laughs> but how am I going to go about it? And I remember at the time, before I made my decision, um, Bobby Ball, uh, the late, great Bobby Ball, had lived near us in St. Anne's. And I actually bumped into him. He was asking what I was up to and how was it going, etc. Because he, he was like that, Bobby. He was very sort of encouraging to to uh, actors or mm. other comedians, yeah, young yeah. young comedians. He gave give people freely, gave them advice and stuff. And I said, oh, I've been offered this pantomime. And he goes, oh, he said, have you ever done one? I said, no, no, I've never done one. He said, tell you what, come round to my house, Cocker, tomorrow. And he says, and I'll tell you all about it. And I ended up having a masterclass off Bobby. Uh, and I just went, he said, do this and do that. And, you know, as buttons, you've got to, you know, oh, be in man. love with Cinderella. And What a guy to learn from. Yeah. Oh, so I, it was just, I ended up spending like the whole afternoon with, mm. with Bobby Ball. And, and we went on to become good friends after that. And, but yeah, so ended up doing that panto. And then it just sort of went from there. And I, I ended up doing 10 years at Blackburn. And then, uh, and then I just got offered to go to somewhere else. I think I went to real for a year. <laughs> Six, six. Well, not. I didn't spend a year in real. It just. I was going to say. Like yeah, <laughs> I was there for six weeks, which seemed like a year. Yeah, <laughs> but it was a it was a fun cast. Though I was on the. Uh, I always remember. Um, what was he? Um, God, what was he called? The guy from Carry On Films that used to wear like a flat cap and twitch. Oh, Ooh. Jack Douglas. Jack Douglas. Oh. Yeah, he played that the comedy oh, king. Oh man. It. Yeah, so he, he he was really good. He gave me loads of oh, advice and, it and stuff. Yeah, and then just sort of carried on. And um, I mean, this year I'm in I'm over in Belfast, you know, where oh. where it all started from my dad. So I'm all excited about going over there. And it, the thing I love about doing panto is it's um, all you spend all year on your own doing the circuit and traveling around, and then the end of the season you, you end up being put together by these production companies and suddenly you're working with someone who was like a in a soap opera or someone who was a star like athlete yeah uh, or you know someone who had a game show years ago and you just end up getting thrown together for these like six weeks or so and to put this show on mm. and it's just brilliant you know just I just love... it's quite intense though it's an intense oh it's, oh, it's an intense thing like you know you the shows, the company that I'm working for now, they're called Crossroads. It used to be called Qdos, but they're the biggest panto producers. They put mm. like 25, I think, on up and down the country. But they're like wet. They do the Palladium in London and stuff. And but the big, um, like they are like West End shows now. Mm. The, the oh special, yeah. You know the special effects and the costumes and the sets and everything. And people can't believe it when they say when we say, "Oh yeah, how many? You must have been rehearsing all year for this." And it's like, no, it. We get the scripts like about a month beforehand, and then we go down and meet up in a room in London somewhere, and we throw it together in two weeks, you know, and then uh, go on and do the show for four or five weeks, and and then we go our separate ways. It's crazy that brings us back to the Crankies. The Crankies did a lot of panto, didn't they? Yeah, <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. yeah, I think they brought the record, didn't they? Probably. <laughs> oh, panto. every panto they were every year. There was yeah. there was somewhere. There was someone yeah, 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 Cannon and yeah. Ball again, as you say, Cannon and Ball used to do. Yeah. And so like, all those guys. It was incredible yeah. to be able to see these 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 comedians and comedy performers that you love on such a uh, an intimate level that you might not necessarily have yeah. have gotten when you saw them on you know performing as uh, as comedians. Yeah, and no, I remember a few years ago, I remember going to watch a friend of mine, he was in EastEnders. He got uh, he used to work he used to work uh, he was an actor on EastEnders and he got pantomime playing Aladdin. 
he's playing the part of Aladdin. We went to see him over in Liverpool and Bradley Walsh was in it. I'm going back about, I must be going back 25 years or so. Yeah, yeah. So Bradley Walsh was like a young up-and-coming comic on the circuit, on TV and stuff. He'd been on Des O'Connor a couple of times yeah. and that. And um, they had the genie was Mr. T <laughs> from the eighteen. And he, he came up out of this trap oh. door. I remember him, he just shot up out of this trap door and he had all <laughs> he was, Hey, what's happening, fool? I'm like, oh my god, it's Mr. T. <laughs> you know. Uh, so it was just just incredible, you know. God, I mean every every kid from the seventies and eighties would have just like Oh, you just lose. I see Mr. T coming out of a trap door. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine did Panto a few years ago with uh, Pamela Anderson from Baywatch. Yeah. She played like the fairy in it. God knows how much they were paying her. <laughs> <laughs> she probably liked to triple the budget of everybody else that was on the. I know. I know. My friend Jared Christmas, he did one a few years ago with uh, Priscilla Presley. Oh, Jared's so good, isn't he? Yeah. Elvis's Again, wife. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, Jared's great. He's one of he, now. He he is, in my opinion, the best MC I've mm. ever seen. His his audience skills are are incredible. You know, very funny man. Yeah. So you're in the Opera House this this Christmas, anyway. In yeah. Belfast. Belfast. So in Snow White. So mm-hmm. what are you? What what you, what can you tell us about <laughs> about your your performance in Snow White this year? Well. Uh... People always ask me what part are you playing this year, and it, I'm just the village idiot every year, <laughs> just under a different guise. You know, you know, I'm either playing models or S- silly Simon. It used to be simple Simon, but we yeah. won't now, so not it's silly to, Simon. Not allowed to use that. Yeah, one, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, buttons or you know, I've, I've played all them part. Idle Jack's another one. Um, so you usually the uh, say if it's Jack Jack in the Beanstalk, I'm usually Jack's stupid older brother. You know, he just gets up to all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, no, if you're cast as the beanstalk, then you're in trouble. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but so we're doing Snow White over there this year. Um, I It's actually the least one I've done. I've done more. I think I've done seven Jack and the Beanstalk. Mm. And I think Jack and the Beanstalk's my favourite one, actually. Even even though I've done it seven times, it's... I just think it's a brilliant story. It's got everything. It's got a monster in it and, uh, you know, the prince and the princess. So it's got that story of it. And there's a nice moral tale to it as well about greed and stuff like that. Because I think uh, when I I did four years writing uh, the Preston pantomime and uh, I th- it's nice as a writer to be able to put a bit of a moral story in it and stuff. You know, I, I did it all about bullying. You know, you've got to stand yeah, up yeah. to bullies and, and, you know, we had this giant bully in us and, you know, stealing all our money and stuff like that. And so that, that that's the great thing about Panto as well is um, it's the first time young people mm. get to go with their families, they, with their grandmas or whoever and the mums and dads and the brothers and sisters, and they can sit together as, as one big family and watch a show probably for the first time as the young kids and watching something that's family-friendly, Seeing all these special effects and seeing like funny jokes and stupid routines, yeah, and you you hope that stuff like that sort of sits and plants a seed in their head, and they yeah. go, "Hang on a minute, I really enjoyed going to that building. What was it called again? A theatre? Yeah, I think I'll go back there again." You know, because they probably wouldn't even know what a theatre was at six yeah. or seven year old, and then suddenly they're going watching Gangster Granny that's on tour, or they're going watching. Uh, some comedian that they yeah. like who's who's family friendly and then then they grow up and then 
you've got your next generation of theatre goers. And so it, pantomime is very important in that way that it it's, you know, it, it regenerates people's love for the theatre. And going watching, a, you know, a West End musical, oh, let's go and watch like Wizard of Oz or Wicked or whatever. Mm. You know, it's weird, doesn't it? It's a very British, it's an extremely British tradition, isn't it? Obviously, you it wouldn't is. see it anywhere else in the world. You wouldn't no. see it anywhere, anything, you know, Widow Twanky and all that kind of stuff. You wouldn't <laughs> see it anywhere else. Yeah, I do a routine on it in my stand-up. And uh, when I'm doing the American ships, I do, you know, I do the, the cruise ships. Uh, and um, you try and explain pantomime to an American audience. They just look at you like you're, you've There's dropped, a bloke in a dress. It. Yeah. <laughs> And then there's two people in a cow, what you know, in a cow costume, and and uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you don't want to be sharing it with the rest of the world. Is it? No, <laughs> it's behind. It's what's behind? It's behind what's you. behind you? What what is behind you? I don't know, but something's behind me. The audience tells me, and when I turn around, it's not there. So how do you know what's behind you? I don't know. <laughs> oh, that audience interaction, though, with the, the kids get really involved, don't they? Oh, they go. They get so involved. Crazy. So invested in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they get really passionate. And it's funny, as as the, you can see some of the dads that don't really want to be there at the start, you know, they want to... But they're there. They want to, and at the end, by the end, you, I always think, yes, I've got you. I've got you. It's the dads. <laughs> Yeah, by the or the cool, you'll see the cool daughter who slightly doesn't want to be there. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. like 13, 14, Oh, this is boring. You know, and the, the, the younger brothers and sisters are really laughing and enjoying it. And then by the end, they've sort of shed away all that coolness, yeah. and they're going, "Hang on a minute, this is actually really good." And they start, yeah. in, and the, yeah. I love seeing that. You know, as a performer, you look down, you go, "I'll get you." By the end of the, I'll get you. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. There's so few. Things like panto that are so can bring everybody, literally anybody, any every generation, every yeah. colour creed, you know. And you can't join in. I mean, you can't go and watch Wicked and start heckling <laughs> and stuff like that, you know. So they actually encourage people to 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 join in. And I think in today's world, it actually works even better with you know with the people like joining in when they're watching a TV show, whether it be Twitter or mm. or you know Instagram commenting on it and stuff like that. You know, it's the world we're living now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I read somewhere that you opened for the legend that is Frankie Valley. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, last year. <laughs> oh, my yeah, God. I can't believe it. That, that was, I mean, last year was like a really, It was. I just had such a good year after all we'd been through. Mm. And all of a sudden, all these, like I did that play in the in the West End and yeah. then, then Jason did the Jason Manford thing. And then this Frank Frankie Valley just, it was just, came through my website it was a around i rarely get bookings through my website but this mm. message came through and and uh this promoter said oh um we've got frankie valley coming over he's doing a string of dates and i'm like yeah and i thought yeah, i'm well. thinking it's a tribute act or something and they went yeah he, he wants a comedian we've seen he's seen your stuff on youtube and he really likes you so what do you want for the fee for the tour so we agreed to it, and then next minute I'm going over to uh, Yarmouth at uh, Scarborough to do the open air theatre, eight thousand people, mm. and it, Frankie Valley was there, and he's he's eighty eight now. Yeah, 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 eighty eight. But he can he can still do it. He still had the you know still had the. I mean, the Four Seasons are brilliant. The the guys that are behind him, they're they're not the original Four Seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four younger guys, but he can actually still belt it out there and still do it. But the amazing thing was was for me was I knew one of it. Walk like a man and a few of his hits, but when you watched it, you went, "Oh my god, he wrote that! He wrote yeah, that!" Yeah. He, wrote it. he sold the theme tune to Greece. 
you know, Greasy's the word, and you know he was uh, the teen angel in in Greece yeah. and stuff. You know, yeah. well, man. Yeah, no, I call it the Hall and Oates effect. It's one of them things you think, oh, I, ha- I don't know many Hall and Oates songs, but you go and see them, and you're like, oh, I know that one, and I know that one. Yeah. Actually, I know that one as well, and it's just like you know, you're you're shocked by how many of their songs you actually know that you don't, you yeah. didn't think you did. I mean, those gigs, I mean, it, as great as it was to do and stuff like that, they are very hard, mm. you know, especially supporting a music act. Or, yeah, and they're not there for you, yeah. I suppose, as well. No, no, because mm. so people are wandering about and stuff. You know, you, you'll go on at, say, 7 o'clock, 7.30 to do half an hour, and people are getting the seats and moving about and stuff. So you've got to learn to sort of put your ego to one side and just and just sort of play the gig for what it is, really, you know. Um, and sort of take the take the Mickey out of it. You weren't expecting me, mm. and hopefully by the end of your act, you, you've kind of you work. You know, you warmed. They've got the they have the big screens and everything. Yeah. Everyone can see you. You know, but um, uh, yeah, they they are they are a hard gig to play. I mean, I remember supporting Max Boyce uh, back <laughs> when I first started off, like twenty odd years ago, and you know, we were touring around all these Welsh valleys and these little theatres and stuff, and you know, the lights go down and they, and everyone's expecting Max Boyce to come out. And it goes, and then I'm at the side of the stage in an English accent going, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Max's special guest, Phil Walker. And you can hear that, oh, my oh, no. God. <laughs> Bloody Englishman coming out. <laughs> so, then you, so you've got to win them round because mm. they expected Max to come out. I know a few people that supported, you know, the big names of the time, you know, like Lee Evans and people like that. And people like, they, they don't see that there's a support act on. And the good thing about doing the Jason one for me was uh, he goes out and does like 20 minutes at the start. He doesn't even get introduced or anything. Just the lights go down. He walks out, did 20 minutes and then introduce, and then gives yeah. whoever supported him a, a, a really nice build up. And then you just go on and do 15, 20 minutes of your best stuff. And then that's the end of the first half, and then he does the whole of the second half. So he he does actually. It it, it is a really nice thing for the star to do, really. I think something like yeah, that. Yeah, it takes the pressure off you a little bit, and you know? yeah, he's going to do a short spot, and you know <gasps> he's, he's a good friend of mine. We started off on the circuit together. You're in good hands. These are you know, um, and then you walk out, and it's amazing the yeah. the amount of love you get afterwards. Whenever I did them, people are going they're searching for you on the social medias and stuff, and you get, and Jason always like. You get a selfie backstage, and he'd like put whatever your handle is, uh, and it, it, it is nice like that, you know. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I've always seen it on social media. Every time he he performs with someone, he does a selfie and sort of he does you know, tries to promote them. And obviously, if he has, you know, said I want this guy supporting me, he's obviously seen something good in you. <laughs> to yeah, have you supporting yeah. him. Well, some and sometimes those gigs are hard to come by because you know they they, they are put up. With, put on by a certain promoter. And if you're yeah. not in with that certain promoter, yeah. then you're not going to get those gigs because he's got his favourites. But I, I was lucky uh, to get the dates that I got off Jason was because uh, I did the no... I, it, in the previous November, we did a tribute to Bobby Ball at the Opera House Theatre in Blackpool. So there's like 3,000 people on there. Peter Kay was supposed to host it, uh, but he pulled out the last minute. So Jason, who was already on the bill, ended up comparing it. Mm. And I was doing like a five, six minute spot in it. And I went out and did really well, did, did my six minutes. And I came off and Jason, we hadn't seen each other for years. And he just went, oh, Phil, that was really good, blah, yeah. blah, blah. He said, I'm going to have to get you on my tour. And I said, well, I've applied for a few of the dates. I said, well, I haven't heard anything yet. He said, 
I'll make sure you get a couple. Yeah. yeah. So the next day, sure enough, I got a, a message through saying, you know, pick some dates and said to pick some dates. And I ended up doing it that way, you know, so. Yeah, there's been a lot of comedians like supporting bands uh, like, like John Shuttleworth supporting Robert Plant. Uh, yeah. A, sort of case in point. Do you know what I mean? It's a very weird, <laughs> very weird thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'd like to do something like that, like a music gig. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that would be difficult, wouldn't it? I, I I've never I've always shied away from the festival gigs. I don't really mm. like uh, you know the idea. I don't know, I think... They can be good for getting your name. Do you know what yeah. I mean? If someone's come to see somebody else, but they see you as well and think, oh, actually, I didn't know. I hadn't heard of this guy, but he's bloody yeah. hilarious. Yeah, those I suppose you know, like Glastonbury and stuff. Mm. They put a comedy tent on, don't yeah. they? And uh, I just don't know the idea of a load of sweaty people in a tent. <laughs> <laughs> In wellies, yeah. and I walk on going, Ah, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Who's been on the mega bus? <laughs> Fuck off. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're all drunk, <laughs> all yeah. tired. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we were saying earlier, you're, you're a jack of all trades. You, you're literally, you know, you're doing everything, all these different, uh, different things. Do you have a favorite aspect of what you do, or will the comedy, the stand up, always, always be the, the favorite? Yeah, I still, I still love doing comedy. But um, one thing that I'm frustrated about is um, I'd, I've done a few bits of it. I'd like to do more voiceover work because mm. um, I was um, a massive cartoon fan and I grew up, as we all did, watching the cartoons, Scooby-Doo and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And I've always been good at voices, doing voices, and I, I still do like stupid voices in my act and stuff. And uh, when I do, especially when I do pantomime, you know, I'll do like Shrek and Donkey and all that, do the impressions, you know. Um, so I, I I do enjoy that. So I'd love to do more of that. I have I, I've done done a couple of things, a few like commercials and stuff like that, and I did like an online cartoon for a while. Mm. But I'd love to do more of that because I just find it so much fun just sitting in a studio with a couple of other actors with a script and a producer saying like, "Oh, this character's like that," and then you just sort of come up with a, a stupid voice and. And uh, I, th- I think it's, I, I think that's, that could be something I would really enjoy doing. And I think you can do that for a long time as well. Mm. You sat sat in front of a microphone in the studio somewhere. Yeah. And I find that really fun. So yeah, you put your own stamp onto anything, you, you know, you're given a bit of stage, given a bit of direction. This is kind of what we, what we like. And obviously they've, yeah. they've, they've contacted you or they've chosen you. for yeah, a off, your, off your show reel, you know, mm. a voice reel and stuff. And yeah. then, when I first, again, not knowing how to get into stuff, I remember doing the Buzz Club years ago in uh, in in Cholton and um, nearby in Cholton Comardi, they used to have a, a studio there where they did um, Cosgrove Hall. It was called. Oh wow! And, uh, yeah, and Danger Mouse. Danger Mouse. Yeah, and this lady came up to me after I'd been on, and lo- lovely lady called Jean, and she came over and and she said. Um, Oh, really like your voice and you, you, the voices that you did and stuff. Have you ever done any voiceover work? And I said, no, not really, but I'd love to get into it. She said, here's my card. Give me a ring. And I gave her a ring and I ended up going down to the studios. And I'm sat in the same studios where they did Danger Mouse and Count Duckula and all that. Mm-hmm. And she did a demo for me. She said, oh, do a superhero, do a teenager, do this voice, do that voice. And she recorded it all and put me on like a, a bank. They have a voice bank where they store all these voices. So if they're looking for someone to play a certain part, they'll they'll do it. And I ended up working with them a bit before it closed, you know, and um, yeah. Uh, so that sort of 
you know, I remember meeting a guy there. He was called Jimmy, Jimmy Hibbert, he was called. And he, I was talking away to him and he was always so busy doing stuff all the time. He was, uh, he would do like the voice, you know, when they needed someone to play like four or five different voices, you'd have right. the star, you know, like Peter Kay, for instance, playing someone, a cartoon, and then he'd need someone who could do a Scotsman, a, a Welshman, this sort of all little voices, stupid voice. So Jimmy used to get loads of work doing that. And he, I was talking to him, I said, how did you get into it? And he said, well, I used to be in a band years ago. He said, I was an Ian Jury in the Blockheads. He was he was uh, the bass player out. Oh of my it. god! Yeah, and uh, and uh, at the time, milk were doing this big promotion you know, for children to drink milk. This mm. was, I think, I'm guessing this must have been in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. And he wanted Ian Jury had this sort of uh, very notorious voice, didn't he? Sort of gravelly voice. Everyone knew who he was when he spoke, and he they wanted him to do it. And he came. He said, "We were sat in the dressing room." This girl came in and explained who she was. She was this producer from making this milk uh, advert. And Jimmy and he went, oh, I don't want to do it. Don't want to do it. You know, not doing that. Uh, And I'm too busy being, you know, Ian Jury, blah, blah, blah. She went out and he followed her out. He said something inside me just lit lit up. And I was thinking, I always remember thinking this, you know, you've got to take your opportunities when Mm, they come. Definitely. And he just followed her out and he said, well, he said, I can do an impression of, of Ian. So we we always take the piss out of him. And she says, go on, do it. So he did the impression of Ian Jury, and she went, wow, that's spot on. Do you want to do the advert then? Because they want, we'll just do it. We'll go down and record it. So he went down and recorded it. And off that, his career just changed. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Becoming a voiceover man, you know, when he when he left the band. And uh, so it just shows you, doesn't it? You just not, never know where life's going to take you. But it's always going to work in your favour to have a lot of strings to your bow. Do you know what I mean? If you're like not not even yeah, a triple, I mean, not even a triple threat, but do you know what I mean? If you can do, you t- throw t- enough shit at the wall, something's going to stick in it. No, but you're never you're never gonna you're never gonna be short of work. Do you know what I mean? If you can, you no, know, you're a panto I... one minute, and the next minute you're you're in Scarborough, you know, in a, in the open air theatre. You know, it's yeah, and I think that's crazy. I think that's what keeps you busy as well. Keeps you, you know, interested I, as well. Yeah, it keeps you interested. You know, I'm. I, I've never been, I've never said no to a, to a lot of things because I, I think until you try something, it's like yeah. the, you know, vo- doing warm ups for, yeah, you know, the, you know, a friend of mine, Steve Royley, does a lot of warm ups, and I've I've done a few of the warm ups that I don't really enjoy them that much, but that it's another thing where you say on a Monday or a Tuesday night, someone's recording a sitcom, and they need someone to entertain the audience in between. You can mm. go down there and earn a few quid to a studio, mm. and then. You've got your week's wages before yeah. you've even got to the weekend doing the clubs. So you can, if if you if you if you've got the sort of wherewithal to sort of take different things on, I think you can a keep yourself interested and b earn a bit more money. You know, rather than just going, no, this is what I do. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a straight stand up comic and I only do huh. comedy clubs. Yeah. And I have to swear and you know and. If you can't do a clean version of your act, then you're only just going to do pubs and clubs yeah, exactly. for the whole of your career. You're not, you're not, you're never going to do a corporate or a or a, a place that doesn't want you to swear or you know or a pantomime. Mm. I, I think you've got, I think you've got to be versatile, so for, to have any longevity in in this business without making it as a you know a household name. Yeah, no, I mean, even being a warm-up guy or lady, you know, it's, it's it is a good way of getting your name out there. 
you know people yeah. seeing you even you know you're you're on every time there's a, a little break you're yeah, back out again and you're television people are spotting, interacting yeah, like, with people yeah peter kay started off as yeah. the warm-up guy for parkinson and i, I think uh alan carr did it for a while with, with jonathan ross and stuff like that so yeah it is it is a good way of getting getting seen by um no, not only them, but their agents that will probably be there and you'll get to mix with them. Yeah, so it is a, a good thing. Yeah, I think mean, Joe Caulfield as well, I think, did, uh, did. Have I got news for you? Yeah, I, I think do you know what? She's another time. She's another one, going back to what we were saying before about comics. I, I think she she should be bigger than she is. Oh, she? she's incredible. Every time I see her, she's got a new 30 minutes. <laughs> she's writing books and all kinds of oh, stuff. Oh, my now. God, she's she's <laughs> relentless, that lady. <laughs> and such a lovely lady as well you know she she's uh so nice every time i don't don't think anyone's ever had a bad word to say about joe and and such a great comic she's just razor sharp isn't she mm. oh yeah no she was on the podcast a while back and some of the stories she's got are just <laughs> yeah i mean she's incredible she, who hasn't she worked with you know it's just incredible really about music now uh so have there been any sort of major music loves in your life be it an artist or a band oh god um i've got a bit of an eclectic taste really mm. to music really um if you look at my old i've still got all my old cds you know um, everything from sort of eminem to fleetwood mac really um you know anything that sort of takes my fancy um I don't. I don't think there's one specific person, you know. Really, I. I. Um, I just. I enjoy live music. I've always yeah. enjoyed, even when I was going clubbing back in the days. You know, I never really liked. Uh, I never really liked nightclubs as much as going to watch a live band. So, yeah, I mean, the sort of mid nineties. I think we all sort of got into Oasis and Blur. But I always, I always liked Blur. Yes, you know, yes. Blur were my go-to band. You know. Um, a lot of my friends liked Oasis, but I liked Blur, um, and I just like the way he writes songs and stuff. And a little bit odd for a northerner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, but obviously up here, you know, my, probably my favourite Manchester band are the Stone Roses. You know, mm. I love the Stone Roses. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I still play there. This is the one before before my gig. You know, it gets me fired up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wait, that's it. another thing. I mean, so before your gigs, I'm assuming that you do playlists for your for your yeah. own gigs. How does that how does that work? How do you choose what music to come on to? Um, is there a process, what, or is it just what, whatever your whatever you're feeling on the night is is what goes? Whatever. Out? Well, I ch I change my play on to quite a lot. Uh, like I, I had a trauma in uh, Egypt not long ago, leaving a ship where I had to bribe my way through customs to get to the airport. So it was like a traumatic thing that I put on Facebook. And so I got him to play me on to walk like an Egyptian, you know, because <laughs> all the audience had, had knew sort of. <laughs> plus, it's, plus it's a really good song by the Bangles, you know. Um, uh, so, yeah, I sort of change it quite a lot like that. But um, well, I'll tell you what else I've just got tickets for as well, a Tenacious D. I'm a oh, massive Tenacious D Incredible fan, live. Know. Have you seen them before? Yeah. Well, I had tickets, funny enough, to see them. It must have been, it must be 15 years ago mm. when they last toured in the UK. And I had tickets for the Manchester Arena to go and see them. And um, I got, um, I think I was, I got, it, it must, I think it was a TV show or something I got. 
it was a big thing. I, I remember, I can't remember off the top of my head now, but I cancelled it for a good reason. I really wanted to go to it, but I got this, <laughs> This it was either a gig, I think it might have been a, it might have been a tour of, uh, to Afghanistan or uh, Iraq or, or something like that, where it was the money was too good to turn down. <laughs> so, so I ended up selling my tickets oh, online. No. But yeah, but I'm definitely going to go and see him this oh, time. Oh, they're incredible! Just Jack yeah. Black, don't mean he's the he's the yeah. he's the ultimate front man. I know that that the, the, their album. Uh, I I think I knew every word. I, I, in fact, I I remember singing in Afghanistan. We had a little band with us. And I was the first, but and it became an anthem. Um, apparently, after I finished, I'm not saying I'm like a legend or anything, but I, I sang. Uh, you know, you don't have to always fuck her hard. You know that song. <laughs> and I said, hey, this is a song. You know, when you're going back to meet your your wives or your, uh, your girlfriends when you get yeah, back yeah. home, fellas, you got to go. You know, you six months, you got to pace yourselves, and this is a love song for all you. <laughs> And I sang the song and had this brilliant guitarist with me. He was massively into Tenacious D as well. A friend of mine had it on, on, he filmed it on his phone. He had it for a while and it was just amazing. All these squaddies all singing it along with me uh, in this like tank garage. There must have been 2,000 of them there. And, uh, yeah, they're all got their phones up in the air and stuff. And yeah. So I got to feel like a, like Jack Black for two minutes. <laughs> and apparently <laughs> after that it became like a thing where they had to sort of sing it you know because they all all the all the squaddies all knew it that's crazy i know i know <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean, the thing i loved about those those forces gigs it it was just different mm. it was just different you know some of the things we got up to was just fantastic we did a show for the sas one one night yeah uh, and um, the next day they they just said to us, oh, if you come down to the shooting range, you can fire all our weapons. Oh We've got to fire all these, like, submachine submachine. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever had a gun in your hand, proper gun. They're quite heavy. Not a fun thing. I didn't enjoy shooting. I didn't shoot anyone. I shot, like, a, a target, you know. Seriously, <laughs> we're, 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 def- we're seeing a homie side to you, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't force me to kill anyone, you know. They just said, look, just... Due to that target over there. Yeah, shot a few guns. <laughs> I think I fired it once, then threw it on the floor and ran away. <laughs> so, I mean, being a gig in comic, uh, I mean, would you have got, would you, you were saying about your rave days there, would you have gone to many gigs back in the day? Or even do you, are you still, do you still go to gigs? Or has that kind of all what? stopped because of work? A comedy club gig? No, a music gig. Oh, a music gig. Um, you get to see I think, many. Um, do they clash with... Um, I haven't been to see any sort of non-sort of famous gigs for a while, but um, I think the last ones we went to see up in Lithermere, uh, we have um, a festival every year, mm-hmm. and it's got bigger and bigger. And this year they had Sting, so we went to see Sting oh, one night, and uh, supporting Sting was Blondie. Um, so it was like, uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up as as a lot of men of my sort of age fantasising it. She was our older <laughs> older lady crush you know and uh she's still still really hot to this day actually she can yeah. still do it oh she's aging so Debbie well Marie. she's fantastic yeah yeah and those songs are just iconic aren't they you know yeah so i mean best gig best gig you've ever been to best oh, gig. Be, it, be it music or comedy best live performer you've seen i think the best live comic i've seen is bill burr Mm. Up, up close when I did the last last time I did Edinburgh well I did I did Edinburgh the full run in 2012 
and it's as you know, it's so expensive to go oh, up God, there and yeah. do it. And uh, and our daughter was uh, really young at the time, so when she started school and that, it was just like summer holidays. She just, I just went, I'd, I'd rather be at home, you know. I don't really, you know. So I only did it once, but then when I was listening to Bill Burr's podcast a lot, and he said he was going to come over to Edinburgh and do like a, a one-off show. He was going to come over for a week, and um, so I booked my tickets through his through his website and I got myself a week at the uh, free fringe. And, and, but I just went up to do it. I didn't know what the room was going to be or anything. I just thought it was an excuse to go and hang out in Edinburgh for a week and go and see Bill Burr. And we went to this little, it was only a small venue. Um, and it, it was probably about 200 people there, but seeing someone like that up close mm. uh, was amazing. You know, and he's, he's just, it was, it was incredible. It was like different level, sort of um, standard of comedy. And if you looked at the back row, actually, where I was sitting, um, that Rod, Rod Gilbert was sat sort of two down from me. And I think John Bishop was there. Jason Manford was there. There was like, it was like a who's who of, yeah. of comedy or anyone that was there was watching Bill Burr. And just, just incredible, you know. And it was a good week, actually. I remember... There was a guy in the in the next room to me called Eddie Peppertone. Have you ever heard of him? No. Brilliant. Look him up online. Uh, he's a he's a guy. He's probably in his sixties now, but um, he's from New York, and he he has a I think he had a podcast for a while. I don't know if it's still going or not. I used to listen to it for a while, but he he rants. He does these brilliant rants, and he goes like he did he did this brilliant thing at the time. I think it's online somewhere. Where he goes, I get I get heckled a lot. He goes, I get heckled a lot. You know, but he said, I often wonder what it would be like if the heckler knew me as well as I know myself. I think it would go something like this. And he puts the mic on the stand and just walks out into the audience and just starts heckling an empty stage, <laughs> you know, with really personal things. Wow. Hey, hey Peppertone, why is it you wake up at four o'clock in the morning with red birds attacking you? What the hell's that all about? And it just, you know, so it was just a really fun week. But yeah, seeing Bill Burr up close like that, and 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 then getting introduced to Eddie Peppertone, that 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 was that was amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, there seems to be a lot of comedians who are, are doing the American thing at the moment. I know, uh, like the likes of Tommy Tiernan, mm. uh, he's he's touring the US in the next few weeks, and even Jimmy Carr and um, Jack Whitehall, even. It's. Uh... Yeah. In fact, it's on my list. I'm not saying I'm going to do it on that level, but because I've been doing the cruise ships this last two years mm. for Celebrity in Royal Caribbean, so like 50% of the audience is, is from America. Yeah. And I've made quite a few new sort of friends from the people that live in it, and they go, oh, we go down to the comedy cellar and stuff like that. You should come over and blah, blah, blah. So I've kept in touch with them, and I've made a few contacts out there so i'm thinking in the new year i'm going to go out just as just on a holiday but mm. set up a few spots you know so i'd like to go over and do like five or ten minutes at a, a couple of the clubs out there because i think um american audiences seem to like the british stand-up you know they like ricky they like ricky gervais they like jimmy carr and and people like that so i think i think uh i'd like to go over and just give it a whirl you know yeah. see what happens yeah. Oh no, they love the British accent. Yeah. You no, know, they, they they can't understand like the Scots and things. <laughs> oh no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and the Geordies and things. But yeah. 
you know, they love the British accent. It's weird. I was out there and they were like, oh, you know, oh, it's so rare for her, for us to hear a British accent. Really? I was like, yeah. surely you're hearing this like every day. And they're like, no, <laughs> we, don't, we don't hear British accents hardly ever, apart from on the TV if they're watching, you know, the BBC programmes and stuff. But it's not, it's, it's so weird. Oh, like they find LA. It yeah, they find you know? it fascinating, don't they? They find it really quirky, don't they? Yeah, go do a bit of a British invasion, I think, Phil. Yeah, let's get over there. Get over there and, you know, get some yeah. get some gags going. <laughs> thanks so much for chatting with me today, Phil. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 